0: Hey, everyone. David Kern here. Welcome to Close Reads. Before we get into the show today with our special guests, Karen Swallow-Prior and Joshua Gibbs, who are joining Heidi White and I for our discussion of Frankenstein, I wanted to remind you about how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, search for Close Reads in that search bar, and you can join the conversation over on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. And over on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Podcasts. We also have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. We have bonus episodes and some sweet show swag over at patreon.com slash close reads, where we are currently discussing crime and punishment a little bit at a time. The Close Reads audience is the greatest audience in the podcast world, and we're thankful that you've taken the time to, to uh, be a part of it. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And with that, here is today's episode. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and we are here to discuss Frankenstein as we have been the last few weeks. And when I say we, I mean myself and Heidi White, of course, but then also our good friends Karen Swallow Pryor and Joshua Gibbs. Karen, welcome back to the show.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Josh, welcome back as well. You're in Idaho. You're, you're, you're up early to, uh, to join us. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And Heidi, welcome back as always.
2: Thanks, David. You're the best.
0: Wow, that that is very kind. Uh, Okay, so we're here to discuss Frankenstein. As I said, we're on to volume three and we're going to discuss chapters one through four. And uh, Karen, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a summary. So, as we we noticed on the Facebook group, lots of people just read this right away. They read the whole thing in one or two sittings. They got very excited by it. They finished it. And now they've been finished for a few weeks. Um, I know that some of you may have been doing that as well, Heidi. And so, uh, I figure let's go ahead and just kind of reset, make sure we know exactly what we're talking about this week. And uh, if she, I didn't ask Karen to do this ahead of time, so I'm rambling now to give her a chance to, set, yeah, to yeah, yeah. get her bearings. No,
1: it's great. And if I'm wrong, correct me, because I, I finished reading this a few weeks ago too, and now I've been immersed in other work. So, um, this should be interesting. So, this is... Uh, the, we begin here... Um... <laughs> Wow. Um, I'm usually so prepared. Um, is this where? So, is he create? All right, I need someone else to do this. Heidi.
0: <laughs> Heidi's shaking her head too. No. We had Josh do it last week. Uh, the, the, basically, this section is the uh, the journey with Claire His father comes to him, Frankenstein's father comes to him and says, Hey, yo, we made a deal. You got to marry your cousin. And he says, Yeah, but I want to see the world. So then he convinces his to let him go on his trip with Clerval, and they go to all over, all over Europe. They go to Holland, they go to England and then they end up in Scotland where he decides that he's going to, you know, steal away and fulfill his his duties to the monster to create the Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, as that's happening, they, he and Clerval split up. The monster appears to him and that appearance causes Frankenstein to... Um, You know, give up the work. He decides that it's kind of been bothering him the whole time. But then, once he sees the monster, he decides I can't do this. So he rips up the Bride of Frankenstein mid mid creation, and Franken—I mean, the monster. Then, of course, um, it's not really the Bride of Frankenstein. I make—I know it's the Bride of the Monster. I'm just going with the old, just the movie. Um, But then, uh, the the monster uh, follows him, and uh, he he, uh, kills Clairval and leaves his body and then essentially frames Frankenstein, who then um, uh, spends a bunch of time feverish uh, in an Irish prison. Uh, But then there's the magistrate who takes kindly to him, writes a letter to his father, and then helps him get free. And uh, the section ends with him and his father uh, on their way back to Geneva. I think I about covered it.
1: You know, uh, it 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 is it all happens in such a short space. That's why I was so afraid I was going to go too far and say too much. So that so yeah, this is it's fast. Got to avoid here. those spoilers. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like I like to do that. Avoid it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Karen, uh just before we started recording, um you mentioned that this section for you might be one of those sections that you were wondering how people who have never read the book before would would take it because it seems like a big shift. And then I commented that for me, in some ways, it was one of the more enjoyable sections as someone who hasn't read this book in a very long time, like 15 years or something, um, that I enjoyed it. But I also think that that might have been just because of how quickly, you know, how, how rapid the pace is and how, um, for me, one thing I was noticing is many of the things that we were discussing in this section uh, or throughout the book so far are coming together in this section you know some of the comments on romanticism for example become very clear and direct um, you know the differences between how Clerval sees the world and how Frankenstein is seeing the world as they're traveling and so a lot of things that we have discussed have you know started to come together for me but why do you feel like it's so different than the rest of the book um, why do you think that maybe it's, it's, a, it's a departure compared to what we've been reading so far
1: well, I don't know if it's a departure, but I think what I just, um, I always feel a sense of surprise when Frankenstein is arrested. You know, the, the whole scene where, you know, he's, I don't know why, it just seems set up in a way that it's its quite dramatic and that... Um, I mean, of course we're supposed to expect by this point, I think all of Frankenstein's loved ones to be killed and for him to be chased by, uh, by the monster. (laughs) Um, but for some reason, this, the way this is narrated, the way it's set up, um, it just still kind of takes me by surprise. Maybe I'm just naive. Um, and even (laughs) though I know it's, it's going to happen just, um, that, uh, not only does you know is Clairval killed by the monster, which I guess isn 't that surprising, but the way that um Frankenstein is framed for the murder um, seems vi- to in some ways that 's one of the most frightening parts so far because imagine being accused of a murder, and all of the circumstantial evidence points to it, and you 're alone and you 're in this strange country, and you have nothing it, everything points to your guilt and hmm. I don't know. That just seems very frightening to me. <laughs> so I think that's-
0: there's a there's a claustrophobia to that to yes, those chapters too yes. about the about the prison. Yes. Josh, um, this section is bracketed by by um, Frankenstein's uh, and his father. Conversations between Frankenstein and his father, and you've spent a lot of time uh, referencing his his relationship with his father throughout the the last several. Episodes of this podcast, and you pointed out that there is a important conversation uh, with with his father as they gear as Frankenstein is gearing up to uh, to go on his excursion. <laughs> and uh, could you? I would I would love to hear from you on this because you this is something that you know you you've been really keyed in on that relationship with his father in a way that I didn't notice when I first read it. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could you know take us through this what you're thinking here.
3: So if we could all look on. We could look at chapter one in volume three. And this is the conversation that Victor and his father have that lead to Victor and Clairval leaving. Now, I want to point out something about this conversation, which is that the eighteen eighteen version of this conversation and the eighteen thirty-one version of the conversation reveal that Mary was very dissatisfied with the logic of this conversation. And it seems that she stayed on this and came back to it and realized that, and I don't like to criticize classic literature, but <laughs> that there are some elements of this conversation that just do not make sense on a practical plot level. And so she manipulates them by 1831 so that they simply make more sense so that there's no hang-ups for the reader. But I would like to point out a few of those things. So first of all, Victor's father comes to him and says, do you really want to marry Elizabeth? This is one of two conversations that that begin, do you really want to marry Elizabeth? Victor has the perfect out in both of these conversations, Uh, both when Alphonse and when Elizabeth later ask him, do you really want to get married? They know that he doesn't. And they even assume this in the way that they speak to him. Uh there's all kinds of little outs given to him where he doesn't have to go through with the marriage. And they both say this, Alphonse says this, uh, it seemed to me, son, that maybe you didn't want to marry Elizabeth that maybe you thought of her as being too close to you. Is that the case? And Victor, as opposed to saying, yes, thank you. Finally, someone realized this. (laughs) I've never wanted to marry her upon hearing this very honest question from his father. Victor just plows right through and says, oh, no, no, I'm totally content. To marry reassure Spav-. yourself. Yes. But but then comes the tricky part, because Victor's father then says, well, let's get married this afternoon, which is an odd follow up. <laughs> and Victor, <laughs> and Victor says, I can't because I have to go to England for two years and I haven't told you about it. <laughs> yeah, today's <laughs> now, this not going to work. Yeah, today's not going to work. How about like two years from today? Um, and Mary realizes that the way that, that this moment in the conversation is implausible, and so she changes it later. And it's not two years that Victor's going to go for it. In the, in the future version, or in the 1831 version, Victor is made far more crafty, and he says, Dad, I need to go to England for a couple months a year tops because I have some research that I need to do there, which is a far better excuse than I need to go to England for two years and see the world before I get married. That's not really consistent with the, with the rest of the book, because we know that Caroline and Alphonse traveled the world after they were married together. And so Victor has this example of married people traveling the world together. It's not, uh, it's not, as though he needs to get his wild bachelor days out of the way before he can marry. (laughs) He's got a much different example set up for him by his parents. So the fact that he says, I need two years in England to see the world before I settle down seems odd. It seems odd to marry later, but here's, here's actually what all this is building up to in the later version. Alphonse agrees to let him go, but says, Henry's going to come with you. Now, Henry comes with them in this version, but it's not made explicit here, though I think you could still argue it. It's not made explicit here that this is his father's idea. Now, Mary makes it explicit later because, given the nature of Victor's mission in England, he would obviously not choose a companion to go with him because he has to dump this companion just a little while later. Now, what this means is that Victor's father must go to Henry and say, my son needs a chaperone. He's not well. He's always going off on his own. I'm very worried about him. Someone needs to go with him to England. Now, the other reason why we can assume that this is a request that Alphonse makes is because Henry doesn't have the money to live for two years in England. The Clairvall family's not rich. Alphonse has to be bankrolling Henry's trip, because Henry doesn't have enough money to do this. And this makes much better sense in the later version. Uh, It's almost like a talented Mr. Ripley sort of arrangement. Why don't you go with my son? I'll pay for it. You keep tabs on him. Bring him back safe. That's (laughs) more the explicit nature of the arrangement later on. But here, Henry's still going. Now, this is a drag on Victor, but we (laughs) have to assume that Alphonse tells Henry, keep an eye on Victor he's not well i don't trust him alone he must have this conversation with him which makes it all the more telling that later on when henry and victor part ways henry doesn't say anything if we assume that henry and if alphonse hires henry to go on this trip with him just to keep an eye on him it should raise henry's suspicions when all of a sudden victor says hey i need to go off on my own for a couple months. I don't really have anything to tell you that I'm going to do. But I need you to stay here and not go with me to Scotland because Henry doesn't question this at all. He says, well, I'd like to come with you, but Henry just goes along with Victor's request to go off on his own, more or less the way that his father does. And so all of this to say, to bring this back to a, a comment I made a couple weeks ago. No one's being honest with one another. No one's asking very difficult questions of one another. Uh, Later on, we're going to find that what exactly Victor is doing when he's off in Scotland is never questioned by anyone. Uh, And Victor even makes a comment in this section that there was no more, oh, I don't have it. I don't have it marked, but there was no more indulgent father anyone could possibly ask for. Maybe Karen or Heidi remembers this. And that just seems so true, given that his father allows him to take this absurd trip when, his, when he's obviously not well. Um, anyway, I'll leave off there.
0: See, that, that kind of uh, a reading right there, that's why Josh Gibbs is fun to talk about books with. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a way, it's like: Is there a chance that that um, Shelley is kind of? Like, so, when you were go first going through the the lack of logic there in, in the conversation, we were laughing, right? And is it possible that she was going after a sort of, she was trying to be he, add some humor to it, like she means for it to actually be sort of absurd, and but then that wasn't coming across, so then she had to adjust it. For the 1831? Because in a way, it's kind of a humorless book. But it seems like maybe at times she is pursuing a sort of, you know, she's trying to be ironic at times or she's trying to at least bring an element of that into it. Is that possible? Or is.
1: I would say is, I don't think that, I think it's probably a weakness and a flaw, you know, owing to being a young writer. Um, yeah. And which is why it's fine to point out these things. I mean, even Homer nods, right? Um, but um, but I don't know if maybe it's more that she's just making some assumptions based on her own lifestyle, hmm. her and her sort of closed system that later she realizes her readers can't assume. I mean, Mary and Percy hmm. and their circle of friends were all running around England and bankrolling each other, and um, and I mean that that's just was sort of part of what this world consisted of not the whole world, but her world. So I just wonder if she's just sort of making some assumptions um, that her, you know, that that she later realizes her readers need to have filled in.
3: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I, I, and I wonder, I mean, if, if when she was originally writing it, you know, maybe she was writing it for her friends as much as anything, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, and, and of course she, we know the origins.
1: It, she was writing it. It started with a story right. for her friends. Yeah,
0: and then it becomes something. Other people are reading, and you start saying, "Well, I guess I should." Yeah, clean it up a little bit. Yeah,
1: it's like when I'm grading um, papers, and a com- you know I have to commonly and often remark on my student papers. You need to explain this. What's the connection between this and that? You know, it's all in their heads, but yeah. they haven't put it on the paper.
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Or it, it. I also find in grading fiction written uh, fiction written by younger students that I, I constantly have to point out uh, the fiscal impossibilities of what they're suggesting. <laughs> the, the 15, 16, 17-year-olds often assume that uh, everyone has the time to travel the world and go to New York <laughs> and wander around Paris for several weeks with absolutely no description of where they got their money, etc. And rookie writers almost always assume that everyone is independently wealthy, <laughs> especially young rookie writers, and that there's absolutely no sort of responsibility to balance uh, against adventure. And, um, and so, th- I mean, this is the reason why a lot of people in, in books inherit all of their money, so that the, the business of, of work can, can just be sidestepped.
0: Yeah, it's not. We're, it's, we're not talking Sebastian Flight here. This isn't Bride's Head Revisited. <laughs> um, so, I want to um, ask a question about the dilemma that Frankenstein has been up against in this whole section. Last week, we talked a little bit about whether he should do what the monster says. Should he? Should he build this, create this, this bride for the monster? This, and that's a very generous word that I'm using there. But um, I, I got to thinking about. The um, the beginning of, I think it's chapter, the second, third chapter of this section. It's the chapter where he's sitting in his laboratory in the evening and it says, the sun had set and the moon was just rising from the sea. I had not sufficient light for my employment and I remained idle in a pause of consideration of whether I should leave my labor for the night or hasten its conclusion by an unremitting, att- unremitting attention to it. As I sat, a train of reflection occurred to me, which led me to consider the effects of what I was now doing which I find, it's like, finally, (laughs) Uh, three years before I was engaged in the same manner and had created a fiend whose unparalleled barbarity had desolated my heart and filled it forever with the bitterest remorse. I was now about to form another being of whose dispositions I was alike ignorant. She might become 10,000 times more malignant than her mate and delight for its own sake and murder and wretchedness. So he goes on and on about this. And then, you know, he says down at the bottom, had I a right for my own benefit to inflict this curse upon everlasting generations, he says, the wickedness of my promise burst upon me. I shuddered to think that future ages might curse me as their pest, whose selfishness had not hesitated to buy its own peace at the price perhaps of the existence of the whole race. So he's beginning to think about the consequences of his actions and, you know, in terms of like, what's my legacy going to be? What's the history of the human race going to be? What's this going to mean to every living person? But I was wondering, is this scenario that he has come to, come to see and come to believe as the truth the way it had to be? So when he created the monster, he believes now he's created this creature and that was the way the monster just is, the way it was created. You know, He seems not to be wondering if there's a nature or nurture scenario going on here. So I'm wondering, is the scenario that he believes, that he, re- he sees and which did come to pass in the case of the monster, necessarily the way it had to be like, and I guess maybe it's a question of was the sort of creation that he was doing necessarily going to lead to this. And that seems to be a, a crucial question when thinking about the question of this, this uh, the second monster that he's creating. Heidi, what do you think about this?
2: I, I think that's one of the great questions of the novel. It, it struck me this particular time reading this section um, that how you know so many people who read this novel for the first time are, have this kind of feeling of of whirlwind melodrama to it? Like there's uh, Justine, and she's falsely accused, and and Karen, you talked earlier about how that would feel. It happens to two characters in the novel, right? Which that's neither of them are a climactic point. They're just kind of plot points. There's all of these like huge melodramatic things that don't actually happen in ordinary human lives and um and and that that is in some ways perhaps evidence of the level of development of its author um and the form of the romantic novel and all these things i think what's brilliant about this novel is the underlying the things that aren't said the subtext uh not necessarily the big plot points um and i But I think that what you're saying is kind of the whole point. If, as Josh said last week, if the creation of the monster is fundamentally an act of impiety, then it's a monstrous monstrous thing to do. It's born out of monstrosity and distortion, and it will thus necessarily create devastation in the world. Um, or taken from another perspective, if it's just an, a blank slate act of science, then it could, then, then this monster could have been formed towards virtue and it's then Victor is responsible, or then you have the question of who is responsible for the fact that the monster becomes monstrous. Now, Another thing that we haven't talked about yet on the podcast is uh, how the monsters, there's been a kind of a long belief in human history only recently challenged that, uh, and we see it this in Shakespeare with Caliban, for example, what I'm about to say, that the, the outward form of a character that's deformed in some way or monstrous in some way is a reflection of what must be on the inside. If you're a monster on the outside, then you're necessarily a monster on the inside, as Caliban is in Shakespeare. And it's only in recent uh, uh, critical theory that Caliban's seen as sympathetic at all. That would have never even occurred to anybody uh, reading uh, in the past. But we don't necessarily believe that anymore. Moderns don't believe that if you're deformed on the outside, you're necessarily deformed on the inside. That's a good thing. We've gotten somewhere, at least. But there's there was that belief at the time that the outward form of the monster maybe was always, you know, going, just doomed him from the start. So I, I, I don't know if there's a definitive answer to your question. I think it's a major interpretive question of the novel. And one of the things that keeps this novel alive in spite of its flaws.
0: So Karen, I guess my question is, you can answer the original question if you want, but why doesn't Frankenstein just try to make her better? Like, why doesn't he learn from the first experience and then say, okay, so, you know, maybe there's some tweaks we can make. Like there's some things that maybe we can, maybe we can dial down the, uh, the vengeance quotient or something.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess the the main way that I read this novel is it, Um, it's like trying to get into the mind of God when he created mankind. So when I read passages like the one you just read, had I a right for my own benefit to inflict this curse upon everlasting generations, I see that as, as, you know as basically accusing god we've talked about this before right um saying you know why did god create human beings who were um capable of falling and i mean this is the question so many people still ask i mean how could a good god create people who are going to inflict pain on one another um and so to me that's that's the question that's uh that's being grappled with and so it really is seems to come down to use your framework, your earlier framework, it's it's all about um, nature, not nurture, right? What is what is the nature of creation, and what is the nature of God, and what is the nature of cre- of creation, um, and the act of creation, and is it right to create something? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but um, I think that's what I, I think that I don't think there really is the possibility in the mind of the narrator, the author of creating a better,
3: better version. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's more, it's, it's, you know, if we go back to sort of the, the ethical questions that we face today about the, the things that science offers us, um, it's not so much what, you know, can we do something, but should we, this, this novel is all about the, should we. Um. Hmm. Should we do mm-hmm. this just because we can? Mm.
0: So then Josh, did, did uh, Frankenstein do the noble thing by ripping up the, the second monster and enduring the consequences?
3: No, I don't think so. And, and that's because one of the great things about the book is that it's capable of seamlessly shifting from one conversation to another and reframing the conversation. Mm-hmm so that the plot is about something else all of a sudden, <laughs> and, and it's slippery that way. So yeah. uh, if we look at the beginning of chapter three, Victor has the same sorts of concerns that every mother has when she's five months pregnant. His concern here is, oh, I'm not going to be able to dictate everything this child ever does. What if this child yep. does something terrible someday? the The concerns that he has when the second monster is uh, in utero, so to speak, are fears that every parent has. and it's an acknowledgement that you can't control mm-hmm. everything your child ever does for the rest of their life, and that people are free and autonomous beings that can be treated well and become lovely, but yet maintain their own wills. And so we notice here that that what Victor's not, I don't think what he's not, what what he's not really concerned with, I, I don't believe, is that these two children that the first and the second monster will have children and they'll fill the earth, although this is a concern stated later. Because he has the ability to create the female monster with an inability or without the ability to procreate if he wants to. Um, so he's the bioengineer here. He can, he can simply remove a few parts um, of the female monster so that it's incapable of, of bearing children. What he's really worried about is bringing another free person into the world and not being able to dictate everything that they do. And that's terrifying for everyone. Every parent is worried about this. Every parent thinks about the fact that their children will be free beings who will ultimately turn 18, uh, be legally autonomous, capable of going out into the world and doing whatever they want. Uh, But Victor doesn't want to be responsible for a free person. (laughs) that's what's been so problematic for him. He wants to be, he doesn't mind being responsible for someone else if he can have complete control over them. But what he learned with the first monster is the dangers of entering into a relationship with any free being, which is that you can't control them perfectly. And that's kind of what he's realizing here. So Uh, To go back to the question that you asked a few minutes ago, is it noble for him to tear up this being? I say no, because I think that Mary Shelley has shifted the conversation over to the parent's dilemma or the, the parent's fear here. And as opposed to Victor following through on the creation of the second monster and living in confidence, hope, fear and trembling of what another free person is going to do. He simply proves a coward and, and aborts the child lest he bring a free creature into the world that can do what it wants. Mm.
0: It's so interesting that you're talking about free people because this section is full of, um, well, images and scenes and vocabulary that are, that are related to that concept. And there seems to be this question. Well, so for, well, for example, he's in prison at one point, right? So he himself is not free. He, um, the the monster literally calls him a slave. He says, slave, no. all of a sudden things change, right? He says, slave, I before reasoned with you, but you have proved yourself unworthy of my condescension. Remember that I have power. You believe yourself miserable, but I can make you so wretched that the light of day will be hateful to you. You are my creator, but I am your master. Obey. And then in the next section, at the very next, his response is... um. Shall I, in cold blood, set loose upon the earth a demon whose delight is in death and wretchedness? And then there's um, there's a lot of different sections where, where it has these images of someone being free, but also being alone. Like he's walking along by himself. You know, he's got this. He's finally got some freedom to. You know, he's free of the monster. Finally, he's free of the oppression of the monster. But then he's feeling like a specter, and so things do kind of switch there. And then of course he ends up in prison. And so there's this, uh, it, that, that notion of freedom seems to be a little bit less, uh, ha- what makes someone free is, uh, is complex in this book. It seems like, uh, and it's not always, uh, being alone, <laughs> which is what Frankenstein seems to think is, is tied to freedom. He doesn't want to, you know, that's why the image for me of the, uh, of the monster at the foot of his bed keeps coming back. It's really this, Maybe it's because again, maybe it's because I've got little children and I experience this all the time. <laughs> but that that image is is very uh, it's just been really profound uh, and it, and while it's it's an image of like not being free, you know, it's kind of an image of you know you, you're not free to do whatever you want, you're not free to sleep through the night. <laughs> it's also it's also an image that like isol- like being alone is is not a desirable result either you know that there's that being in relationship with people which is what the monster really d- desires like he he has it seems like the most rightly ordered desire of any character in the book in that way
2: i think that's insightful david and i what you've just said about the monster having a rightly ordered desire um and although maybe so that's much too much strongly of, put that may be well, too strongly no, no, no. put. <laughs> the, what you said was the most which in a book of such disorder that's still not a very high bar. So, um, but he wants, he wants a life companion, which is exactly what Victor is always trying to avoid. Always. He does agree to marry Elizabeth, but he asks to leave. And then he, the next action that he takes is to destroy a female. And I, I think that that is compelling and, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of scholarship on this particular question of, of the abortion, um, kind of the, the conflation that Victor takes here of all the women in his life. When he has the ability to create, uh, he's taking upon himself the role of a female, right? That's, that's a power given to women by God, not to men. He takes it for himself and then he destroys his creation, and that is a he's in he's not only then taking the form of to go back to Paradise Lost, um, there he's not only being Satan here he's being like the anti-Adam and the anti-God, all in this moment, um, and with his creation standing there watching him do this. Uh, So in every way, there's just this diabolical, infernal reversal of what it means to create, what it means to love, what it means to have relationship and human connection with anybody. By tearing up the female monster, he is uh, committing an act of profound, profound impiety, where as he thinks he's, or he's trying to make some kind of claim that he's fixing, this, this whole section, there's a lot of plot points that happen here, but this whole section to me is the part of the book when Victor is the most diabolical and lies to himself, doesn't know himself, um, and shows himself to be the, uh, the anti-type really to everything good.
0: So, Karen, there um what she's talking about there. Uh, do, okay, so we know that um Mary Shelley's mother wrote a very famous essay. I think it's a vindication for the of the rights, the rights of, women of women is mm. is a um essay, right? Or is, it, is it a
1: treat it's a book, a treatise. Yeah. It's okay, a book length okay. work.
0: Okay, okay. Um so how well do you know that book? Pretty treatise? pretty well. I I was thinking I was trying to remember while I was reading because there's that there's that section where Elizabeth basically says, "Boy, I wish I had the re- ability to go do the things mm-hmm. that you men get to go off and do and you know, I'm going to stay mm-hmm. here and mm-hmm. wait for you to come back." And th- you know, I couldn't ha- that, I couldn't help but wonder if That's what this section is. Is one of those sections where Mary Shelley is drawing on some of the things that her mother was saying in that treatise. Do you think that she that there is something to that? That she is she's obviously grew up in the shadow of Mary Wilson Crafts and and the the, the cases that her the arguments that her mother was making. But do you think this book is meant to be a continuation of some of those arguments and some particularly in this section and lines like that and some of the things that Heidi's saying would play into that?
1: Yeah. You know, I don't I I that's a that's a good question. I mean, there is, we've talked about this before. There's a lot of talk of virtue in this novel and um and uh, there's a lot of talk of virtue in A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, uh, which often surprises people who have a different impression of Wollstonecraft. <laughs> um so I definitely see echoes of it, but I I I think at this age, I'm not sure that Shelley really did sort of had internalized the kinds of problems that her mother was addressing, um, for women. Um, I think she was experiencing them. So in the figure of Elizabeth, I definitely see those echoes. I I keep thinking more as we've been talking about this section, particularly chapter three and the passages we've been reading. I've been thinking more of Goethe and of, um, Hmm. Faust, um, Faust you know in in his version and you know I don't I would assume I don't know if you know Shelley read Marlowe's version of the of the Faustian legend but uh that passage that someone read I don't remember now who um just that one line from the monster you are my creator but I am your master obey I mean those are that's basically the words of Faust are uh, the words of Satan or the de- Mephistopheles um the demon in the faustian legend um because mm. you know faust conjures the demon thinks that the demon is going to serve him uh and de- yeah the der- demon sort of does but not really and in the end um you know that's, that's where we get this expression the faustian bargain that's what i keep seeing that um victor has done here. He's made this Faustian bargain. He thought that he was in power and in control by making this creature. Um, But it turns out that, that he is, you know, that the power he has given in that act, he has given up all the power he has over his life and over his, his loved ones as well. Um, Hmm. So, yeah, we'll leave that thought (laughs) there for now.
0: (laughs) So, okay, so then is the. He talks at the end of uh, chapter two, I think. He says something like, um, My heart was sickened, something like that. My heart was sickened. My heart was sickened at the work of my hands. I knew I wrote it down. My heart was sickened at the work of my hands. So, Josh, I'll ask you this first. Is the fact that his heart was sickened at the work of his hands indicative of a hope for Frankenstein? Or is it. well, I'll just leave it at that. Is it indicative that there is hope
3: for, for him and his soul? <laughs> uh, perhaps, although he comments in a couple places that the creation of the second is not like the first. The first, with the creation of the first, he's driven on for this thirst for knowledge and accomplishment that makes him blind to just how disgusting a thing he's doing. Um, but with the second one, he already knows how it turns out. So he's more, his eyes are open to just how revolting it is to carry around a bunch of body parts uh, and to sew them together. I mean, remember that, I mean, for Victor, Victor collects the parts for the female in London. He's been traveling with 200 pounds, maybe, of rotting female flesh for months now like god knows how he keeps them from literally disintegrating Uh, but he's brought he acquires the corpses in london and he packs them all the way to the north uh, of scotland uh it's um it's disgusting rather obviously and his eyes are open to it um so i don't i don't necessarily think that this is cause for hope for victor uh he sees how Just how unsavory an enterprise is uh, that he's involved in, Um, and he's uh, he's repulsed by it. But I don't know. I don't know if there's. um, I don't know if there's a spiritual analog uh, to this uh, revulsion. I think it might just be uh, a a basic sort of um, common sense that it's gross to carry around rotting body parts.
0: Okay. But let me, let me, let me counter that a little bit if I can. Um, so in chapter four, there's the part you remember I mentioned earlier, he, he's walking on the beach. It says, I walked about like the aisle, like a restless specter. Um, it says when it became noon and the sun rose higher, I lay down on the grass and was overpowered by deep sleep. I had been awake the whole of the preceding night. My nerves were agitated and my eyes inflamed by watching and misery. The sleep into which I now sunk refreshed me and when I awoke, I again felt as I belonged to a race of human beings like myself and I began to reflect upon what had passed with greater composure. Yet still the words of the fiend rung in my ears like a death knell. They appeared like a dream yet distinct and oppressive as a reality. So he talks about how he's awake and then uh, on the next page, at least for me, it says, but now I felt as if a film had been taken from before my eyes and that I, for the first time, saw clearly. So then my my counter question, I suppose my clarify, maybe let's just call it a clarifying question. Uh, I don't really want to get into a debate with Josh Gibbs about Frankenstein. That's a, that's a, I'm never going to win that one, but let's call it a clarifying question. Um, is this then him not seeing himself clearly the way he thinks it is, or is it actually evidence that his, he is changing in some way? And, and I, I, at some point I'd be very curious to know what you guys think of the number of times that he falls asleep and dreams in this book and what that might mean. But so let's just start there, I guess, with, with my first question there. Is this him lying to himself or is this evidence of actual change? I,
3: I don't know what film passes from his eyes. He, I don't know what kind of um, realization he's claiming to have here. Because in this moment, he's uh, first of all, I don't believe that he actually interprets the monster's threat as against himself. I'm pretty sure that Victor knows from the moment the monster makes the threat, who the real um, recipient of the monster's promised violence is. Uh, I'll be with you on your wedding night. There's no way Victor interprets this as a threat against himself. And I think it's the threat is actually rather convenient that once we know that the threat is against Elizabeth, It's very convenient for Victor to misinterpret it, because then the monster takes care of Elizabeth so that Victor doesn't have to. Uh, Victor can get rid of the Elizabeth problem without ever having to let anyone down. He simply needs to marry her and let the monster kill her, and then he can be done with her. So
1: I wait. I have to jump in here. Can I jump in here? Because I <laughs> yeah, do uh, I seriously disagree here. Um, <laughs> so um, not to lose track of the question, but I actually because I have written in my margin. This is one of the brilliant points I think of of Shelley's narrative art. Um, you know, I've written misdirection next to that because on that when when the, he says. Uh, when Victor says, and then I thought again of his words, "I will be with you on your wedding night." It then says that then was the period fixed for the fulfillment of my destiny, and that hour I should die and at once satisfy and extinguish his malice. Like I, I think Shelley has brilliantly misdirected us so that what the monster actually does, I guess we're past the spoiler point. You know, is a surprise to us. To me anyway when I, I remember reading mm. it and just I, I I being surprised I don't know <laughs> I was surprised You thought the a lot. monster
0: had turned his attention to Frankenstein yeah, and then when he yeah, would, then yeah. when he uses Clerval again. So, so, it, right yeah.
1: right. So I, anyway so I think I think Victor really did think that the monster was after him. So go ahead Josh. Go, go ahead Josh. Well
3: it, it it could work both ways I suppose. I don't think that the audience is supposed to believe it. Um, Well, I did. (laughs) Well, and it's i mean, maybe one of the most, I mean, the most, if you want to know if you're reading a a horror novel or watching a horror movie, you you only need to ask yourself whether there's, (laughs) there's always a question that you ask while watching a horror movie, which is how could you be so stupid? That's the (laughs) question that lets you know what kind of, what kind of story it is. Because in horror stories, generally speaking, it's always some very foolish mistake that trips mm. up um, anybody as they die.
1: Don't go in the basement.
3: Don't go in the basement. <laughs> right. Why are you going back there? Right. Um, yeah. We're, you know, 90s slasher films. Some girl watches all of her friends get killed over the course of a week and... And so she decides to spend the night alone in a house with the door <laughs> unlocked and there's a creaking down the down the hallway and she's brushing her teeth in her nighty you know slowly pacing down the hall saying who's there and and you're saying the whole time how could you be so stupid um so so maybe Shelley wants to draw this flabbergasted reaction out of us how could you be so stupid um but on the night in question, and maybe we should save this for, for when we actually get to that por- portion of the book. I mean, in the night in, in question, um, Victor's Victor basically abandons his new wife to go hang out in the hall. And it's all so <laughs> terribly – If we, as soon as we recognize that Victor doesn't want to marry Elizabeth, it's all very convenient for Victor to get rid of her. <laughs> So then why does he lie to
0: I just dropped my pen. I was gonna write a question down. So why why then does he lie to his father with so with so much uh I don't know so, much so aggressively? Like yeah. yeah, I mean it, not yeah, so there's so much on the line, and then he really doubles down on it. And he says, you know, um oh shoot. <laughs> he says, My dear father, reassure yourself. I love my cousin tenderly and sincerely. I never saw any woman who excited as Elizabeth does. My warmest admiration and affection, my future hopes and prospects are entirely bound up in the expectation of our union. So he doesn't just say, <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Right. He's like, he's he pretends he's really into this concept. Right. So why does he, I mean, why does he lie with such, Like it's almost aggressive. He doesn't like if I was his dad, I'd be like, "Eh, yeah, he doesn't want to give uh, his
3: father any bad news. And this is this is the way that all the characters in this book work. They don't want to ask difficult questions of one another and they don't want to give bad news to anyone. No one wants to confront anyone. And I think that Victor would rather say he's going through with the marriage and hope that something goes wrong then reveal the truth. Like, he doesn't want anyone to know who he is or what he thinks. He shuts absolutely everyone out. And so when he's given this honest question, like, do you want to marry your sister or do you think that's gross, like most normal people would, (laughs) would think? Uh, as, a, as opposed to revealing something about himself, he just retreats back into lies so that no one really knows who he is or what he thinks or what he does. Like, like consider what a mystery he is to his family. He leaves for months and years and weeks and months at a time, has very little to say for himself when he gets back. No one ever asks him what he was doing. He doesn't offer any information. And anytime on any rare occasion that someone asks him to be honest, he immediately evades it. No one knows who he is. He's this black hole in his family He's this black hole of information No one has any idea who he is And he likes it that way He doesn't want anyone to know who he is
1: Okay, I so, just figured ha- out what this novel is about
3: <laughs> Oh, alright, well let's just end right there Say
0: <laughs> it and then we can go
1: <laughs> um, is, it,
0: is it about Enneagram types?
1: No, sorry to say no <laughs> um, <laughs> It's a novel about agency and it's you know it's 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 thinking about this new kind of agency that is part of the modern self um hmm. which is developed more in later novels um but i i think that's what's going on here so when so because i'm thinking as we're talking about victor's response to his father's um Propose, marriage proposal. I mean, for, for uh, to Elizabeth, and the way he responds. I mean, this is a world in which people, young people, had like no choices. Right, their their choice was to either um, embrace their societal and familial expectations with a good attitude or with a bad attitude, right? Um, They either had, you know, so if if they're, and again, this is changing, but it's still reflective of a world in which there really was no moral there was no self-agency, no moral agency, mm. because you just did what you know, what you were expected to do in the role that you were born into and that your parents set out for you. That's changing, mm. but that seems like that's what this novel is, is wrestling with. So to me, it seems very believable that Victor mm. Frankenstein would just kind of enthusiastically assent to his parents, his father's will for his life, um, his perfect will for his life, Um mm. But it's still... Because that's just what had been done. Um, but the world is changing. And I think that's what Mary Shelley is is wrestling with here in this novel.
0: And that line by Elizabeth where she says what she wished she could do too. She doesn't have any agency. Right. She doesn't get to make right. any choice. Go on right. adventures that right. she wants to go on. Heidi, you, you unmuted yourself. I take it that you want to say something. It's your turn I, anyway.
2: <laughs> it is. It's my turn. Um, I... So David, you know this about me, but are
0: you Karen talking about and duty and gosh, desire now?
2: No, but I could. <laughs> um that's that's my pet project. That's I was writing about that this morning actually. But the I'm I'm not crazy about Freudian criticism, but it works so perfectly in this novel that these three distinct spheres if you don't like freud you can also use platonic language you can talk about the head the heart and the belly but if you are but i think that the freudian criticism works so well in this novel that you have these three distinct parts of the inner human life the id the ego the superego. and if the monster is the id these like dark, demonic, diabolical instincts to destruction in the world uh, that must be trained. And I think that, that that's where the education piece comes in, that that the id can only be tamed by the active participation of the ego and the superego. The ego being the... Uh, what Victor would represent this, right? The, the, the desire to fulfill his own potential. Uh, we still call that the ego, right? We, we put in a negative term on that, right? If some, if we say someone's egotistical, but really, but what we're saying is they want, they believe in their own, they want to achieve greatness in some way. And, um, and then you have Victor's father, the superego, who's always just telling him the nice, good moral thing to do, right? So, Um, and the, but there are such distinct spheres in this novel. There's no, as Josh keeps pointing out, just rightly, there's, there's, there's no union. There's no communion within these three distinct roles within this novel. Nobody's listening to anybody. Nobody's learning from anybody. Each part is completely rejecting the other. So there's just this constant sense of fragmentation, uh, and, uh, centrifugal force that's the one that goes outward, right? Or well, whatever, whichever one. Um the one like the the spinning that spins outward that forces uh the that forces disconnection instead of communion. Mm. Um and and that keeps happening in this novel. And I think what you're saying, Karen, is so insightful because that on the societal level, that I think it is about agency. It's about the exploration of what what it means to make choices in isolation rather than in communion. Um, and that's a very modern problem. And, uh, But on the inner level, it also explores what that means internally for each of the characters. And we get the greatest glimpse of that, I think, into Victor, but we also get that with the monster. We never get it with Alphonse, right? Which to use Freudian terms, again, works perfectly because the superego doesn't have a self. It's only just the conventions. Uh, And and in order to achieve some kind of self, it has to be unified with the other parts of the soul. Um, So... Like I said, I'm not a Freudian, I'm not a Freudian, but I think it works very well within this novel to see these like three distinct spheres that instead of being united are warring against each other and the destruction that comes out in that. And that's where I think your point, Josh, about the convenience of the monster's destruction is so compelling because basically, and what I think you're saying, and I agree, at least what I'm going to say is the monster is doing Victor's bidding all the time. The, the monster does exactly what Victor wants him to do, uh, but they're still profoundly disconnected. Um, and there could be some kind of union, but each, par- it, each of them rejects the other. And there's been, I've always wondered when I've read this novel, could it be that the monster isn't even real and that it's just Victor's like shadow self? And that doesn't work within the plot of the novel, which I think actually is better because it keeps those two, it keeps them distinct from oh, each other.
0: Oh, I think the book definitely wants you to question whether he's, uh, whether yeah. the, whether the monster is real. Karen, go ahead. You were going to say something?
1: Yeah, no, I just, I, I just wanted to um, kind of Echo what Heidi was saying. I mean, we don't even have to go as far as as Freud, although that is a helpful paradigm. But this is this novel. One of the genres, subgenres that it fits into is is, it's a psychological novel, in general. And remember, the idea of psychology, the understand, you know, just a psychological understanding of human beings uh, was new and also emerging at this time, tied into the whole idea of the modern self. Um and so that also is why the dreams are so important and prevalent because you know this is a it's a psychological novel written in a time when psychology um as an understanding of of the human condition was emerging. So hmm.
0: okay let's let's talk about the dreams thing. Um we'll we'll wrap up here in a second because I know everybody's got hey, things to do. Before
3: we get to the dreams thing I was, yep, go, go ahead. to make on I I like Heidi's comment that that the monster simply does Victor's bidding. Uh, there's there's a number of murders that the monster and the, some of the the killings of the monster I think are convenient for victor in in odd sorts of ways but to mm-hmm. but to ride on but to ride on um heidi's comment um there's a sense in which the monster is the fruit of Victor's secret private life, and uh, another thing that this novel um, is interested in, in putting forth is the new possibilities of having multiple lives that emerge from city life. The, the city creates the possibility of someone having this well-cultivated, manicured, private other life, which you wouldn't really have in an um, agrarian society, in a society where everyone lived out in the open. Um, where there was no place to hide, where there was no anonymity, but cities create anonymity anonymity creates the possibility of a second life. And so while Victor's in Ingolstadt, he carries on this, this nightlife, this second life, this hidden life. And the monster ultimately emerges from that. Um, and in that way, it's maybe some analogs to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is another story of a, a second life that emerges at night. Um, But maybe another one of the great morals or points of the novel is that you can't keep your second life hidden forever, that that your secret second life, the life that you think that only you know about, eventually sees the light of day. And the things that you've done in secret that you thought no one would ever find out about end up taking on a life and a mind of their own and slipping your grasp, and getting out into the open. And so another way of reading the monster is simply Victor's second life out in the open, with the possibility of everyone finding out what he's been doing in private for years. And in that way, the monster's a huge liability, but the monster also Mm. represents what Victor does at night, his second life, his interest, the interest that he has that he's never told anyone about. That's really interesting try to think i the, the section where he's in in
0: he's uh living like in Scotland and he's yeah. saying at the cottage there's this bit where it's i mean it's very counter to the de but he's talking about how he rents a room and he kind of like it's an unpleasant place. The door was off its hinges. It reminds me of some of the ways that the monster was talking about the cave that he was in, and wow. then it, mm-hmm. then he kind of watches these people who are cottagers. I mean, it literally it says um, the senses of the cottagers had been benumbed by want and squalid poverty, and so um, he he has this chance to watch these people who are you know poverty stricken um and he he observes them much in the same way that the monster is observing the Delacys earlier that's the name right yeah um and but he has much less affection for them and so it, it's weird how he it seems to be mirroring the monster's you know as you're saying there it seems to be mirroring the monster's activities but he has he actually has much less affection for the people that he's watching than the monster of all people does hmm. Um, okay, so l- Dreams. Here's the question. Do we want to save that for next week? I know we're running out of time. Or do we want to address it quickly? Mm-hmm. Do we have time to address it, you think? Can, can, that be a, can, the dream, can Dreams and Frankenstein be addressed in five or ten minutes? Or should should we save it and address it? And maybe even at the top of the next episode.
2: I think that based on what's going to happen in the novel, it's a better conversation for next time. Because then we won't we can just talk openly.
0: About. Okay. Does anyone want a second that motion? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. All right. Let's, let's save that then. And we'll wrap it up here. Um, you, you uh, Karen's husband's birthday is today. So happy birthday to him. She's going to go celebrate with him. And Josh is off in Idaho with his family doing stuff. And Heidi, what are you doing? You didn't tell me, so I don't know what to say. <laughs> You're going to go play basketball in the new basketball court.
2: I have to write a talk for a Circe conference on Thursday.
0: So. Yes. Yes. Um, so we have that. We have that going on. But what else? Uh, before we go, last chance. Uh, final thoughts before you know for this next section. What should people be looking for? What are you excited to be reading again or looking for? What are some questions that you're looking for to be answered? Heidi, I'll ask you that first.
2: Um. I mean, we gave some spoilers, but there's that. This whole entire section that we just read is set up, right? Um, and so. I guess I'm going to be looking for what happens on the wedding night, and you know what commentary that might have on all of these things that we've been talking about. I've
0: enjoyed the many references to dark foreboding, which is the new phrase I'm going to use for foreshadowing um, when dark I think foreboding. when I think about that. <laughs> Karen, what about you? Dark. What are you What are you looking for?
1: Um, I would just um, remind readers to pay attention to the form. I know I keep returning to that, but yeah, you know, we have the frame narrative, but then there are lots of letters that play a part. And just think about the effect um, that is achieved by this—you know, this um, artistic choice of having letters and stories within stories play such an important role instead of just having a straightforward narrative.
3: Mm. All right, Josh, your turn um i would I would point readers to a lot of the um first night humor uh which is what the the old Hayes code used to refer to it as uh that comes up here <laughs> where um where Victor is worried about fighting the monster on their wedding night, but Elizabeth can only interpret this as um victor's anxiety about uh going to bed with a woman for the first time. And so there is some, some humorous moments there where if we watch it panning out uh, like in our minds the way that it would in a film, um, Victor's very nervous, but Elizabeth misinterprets all of his anxiety. And there's, a, there's some interesting um, gold to unturn thematically when we recognize that they're, they're both thinking about very different things on their way to the hotel on that wedding night. Mm. Okay. Well,
0: uh, with that, what do you want to pitch? Let each of you... Karen, what do you, what do you have to, uh, what do you want this week? Well, like, in like,
1: like, Heidi, I'm working on a talk <laughs> for yeah, the, the, yeah. the conference. So I hope people will tune into that and it will be
2: edifying and helpful. We're pitching that together. See. It's a co-pitch. Okay, a
0: co-pitch. Okay. All right. Sign Josh, up for
2: the Cersei conference.
0: <laughs> Josh, you've got your, your class coming up. You've got your books on your, uh, your stories on Amazon. What's yeah. your, what's your pitch of the week?
3: Well, uh, next week on the show, I'll have a an address where people can go to sign up for uh, online classes next year, the um, fall classes, Foundations of Modern Politics. And um, yeah, registration will be up for that uh, next week. I'll have an address. Awesome. Awesome. Well,
0: I want to remind people that we have this next this next section. And then I believe after that, we have the Q&A episode. So that's coming up quickly. So we will post the thread on the Facebook page and you can post your questions there or you can email them to us and you can send those to closereadspodcasts at com, And we will uh, try to get through as many of those as we can. Those are always great episodes because, well, the listeners are always thoughtful and it helps us identify gaps that we didn't address. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So be ready for that and be thinking about what questions you'd like us to to try to cover. Uh, with that, uh, thanks to everyone who has been uh, commenting and joining the conversation and uh, being a part of that. You're, you're uh, always, as always, your conversation is uh, really insightful and helps guide some of the things that we talk about on the show and helps us identify questions. Uh, so thanks for that. Thanks to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Uh, and if you want to learn more about that, you can have, head over to patreon.com slash closereads to get the uh, the bonus uh, content that we're doing there on Crime and Punishment, which is a strikingly similar book to this in many ways. That's uh, an interesting, uh, uh, I was going to say a double feature, but you know, you'd have to, it wouldn't be a one evening double feature, but it's interesting books to read at the same time. So, all right. Well, with that, for Joshua Gibbs, for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, happy reading.